Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My, my favorite thing about St. Bridget is that she's the patron saint of brewers. Oh, it's not yeah, yeah, one of uh, St. Bridget's apparent miracles that garnered her her sainthood was that she used to convert her used bath water into beer for her guests at her monastery in Kildare. So she's seen as the patron saint of brewers. And it also means that anyone who is doing dry January can finish dry January on the patron saint of brewing. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. Just two of us in studio this week. I'm news correspondent Zara King, joined by political correspondent Gavin Wright. We don't make much of a group, really. No, just a duo, <laughs> it's, actually just, it's actually not a group chat yeah. at all, really, is it? We should have asked him a good croaks if they had anyone spare. Top of the news gag. Well, we do have Sorry. people joining the group chat this week, we though, do. because we of do. that, because otherwise it is really just... Uh, one which is fair, Richard's on his holidays. He's uh, on Richard holidays. has an awful lot of overtime worked up, so yes, Richard's taking a bit of a breather. And he's so. booked it since ages ago, and he was very much looking forward to this. He wasn't that sad leaving us at all, No, I'm sure he wouldn't. Who would, be, ran out the door, who, would who would be sad leaving us to be fair <laughs> yes indeed indeed uh, we have a lot to get through this week we uh, do. some really interesting guests joining the group chat uh, we have delved into the newsroom to uh, ask a colleague to join us this week mm. on the group chat and that is Nicole Gernon uh, who is joining us from the courts hello Nicole Hey, how's it going? How are you? So, Nicole, um, you have been covering uh, for several weeks, if not months now, the Enoch Burke case, and he has turned up at the school again today. He's racking up uh, bills of over €3,000 at this stage. Um, Give us a bit of an update on where we're at now. Oh, well, Zara, I suppose to give you an update on where we are now, we have to kind of go back to where it all began. So I'll take you back all the way to the end of the last school year in May when the principal of Wilson's Hospital School, Neve McShane, she was the principal at the time, and she issued a request that all uh, teachers use a student's preferred pronouns of they and them and use a new name for that student. Now, Enoch Burke indicated that he wouldn't use this student's preferred pronouns, even though he didn't actually teach the student. And he then confronted the principal about this at a school service and a school dinner and it's for this confrontation that he was then placed on paid administrative leave. Now when the school then went on its summer holidays and when it came back after its summer holidays he showed up at the school even though he was on leave and then that led to the school going to court to seek an injunction to try to prevent him from showing up at the school. They were then granted that injunction but he then continued to show up at the school so then this this school went back to court indicated that he was still Still showing up at the school. So that meant that he was then in contempt of court. So all he had to do to purge this contempt of court was to give an undertaking that he would not show up at the school. However, he refused to give this undertaking and then he also indicated that he would continue to show up at the school. So that's what then landed him in jail. For, so for actually just being in contempt of court, that's why he was jailed. And that's why he spent 108 days in jail. But then just before Christmas, a judge decided that he should be released as he was exploiting his imprisonment for his own 
ends and it was also costing the taxpayer too much money and it didn't look like there was any um, pro, uh, probability of him actually purging his contempt. So he did warn him that if he did show up at the school again he could be thrown back in prison and lo and behold after the Christmas holidays Enoch Burke went back to, back to the school. That led to the school going back to court again and to try to seek another measure to try to make him stay away. So it initially sought the sequestration or the temporary seizure of his assets but a judge decided that perhaps fining him would be a more appropriate measure. Now in the middle of all of this he was actually dismissed properly as well from school after a disciplinary hearing um, and then the, he did continue to show up that school. The 700 euro fine that has been imposed for every single day that he refuses to give an undertaking to stay away from the school. That kicked in last Friday and since then he has been showing up to school. So as you say, racking up quite a substantial bill at this stage. And all of that made so complicated, Nicole. Good job on explaining it thus far. Anyway. Um, but that it, along the way in the proceedings that led up to him being dismissed from the school, Enoch Burke was taking action against the school while at the same time the school was taking action against him. Yes, that's right, Gavin. So that's another element to it. So Enoch Burke sought several ways to try to uh, actually overturn the injunctions that were issued by the High Court. The High Court pointed out to him that the only way doing this was to file an appeal. So he has filed an appeal to the Court of Appeal. That's going to be heard in two weeks' time, and that's an appeal against those injunctions. But at the same time, the full trial of the action, as it's called, about this whole dispute, that is due to be heard before Easter, when the school will be able to set out all of its case, and also Enoch Burke will be able set out his case against the dismissal. And Nicole, you've been at the school gates for a couple of the days now. I mean, what is the atmosphere actually like down there? Is it quite hostile? Is it quite tense? Do you speak to Enoch Burke? Does he talk to the media? What, what's it like down there? Um, well, generally, Zara, he comes in, you know, about quarter to nine or so. Um, he generally doesn't talk on the way into school. He is being dropped off and collected by his dad at the moment, though. We have seen him driving in the past. I know some people have had uh, questions about whether he can drive or not. We have seen him driving in the past, but at the moment, his dad is dropping him in and collecting him from the school. Some days on the way out, he does talk. We do ask him questions, but he doesn't really answer the questions. He usually tends to have what seems like a pretty pre-prepared speech, and then he just uh, regurgitates that at the moment. He doesn't really answer any questions from any of the reporters there. In terms of the students, I mean, it's it's difficult to say how it's affecting them. It must be affecting an awful lot of them. They tend to just go about their business. They go in and they come out. They don't stop or talk to us and neither do their parents as well. And you can obviously understand that. You know, it is a very unusual situation that they are having to deal with at the moment. Um, it is very unusual, Nicola, perhaps even unprecedented, maybe you might know better than us, uh, that the idea that somebody who's in breach of a civil action would actually be facing fines like this on a daily basis, like Keno Park currently is. Yeah, it is very unusual. Like we have seen in the past, the companies have been fined for uh, breaching, uh, breaching injunctions, but not so much individuals. And if that sequestration or temporary seizure of his assets had gone ahead, uh, that would have been extremely unusual. That would have, in fact, been the first of its kind. Um, so this is very unusual. As I say, the whole thing is due to be reviewed now next week on the 10th of February because uh, Mr. Justice Brian O'Moore, who issued uh, this order that he could be fined, uh, he said that if he doesn't, uh, if doesn't have the desired effect, that uh, he would would be uh, minded to review it and it could always be increased if it wasn't having the desired effect. So it remains to be seen what he does do when he reviews it now next week um, because it's difficult to really see, you know, on his teacher's salary how he can afford to pay it. Indeed, Enoch Burke last week indicated that anyone in his position wouldn't really be able to afford to pay it. So the court didn't really want to re-imprison him again for various reasons that it previously set out and as I mentioned earlier on, but if he can't pay it and if he keeps on showing up at the school, it may 
it may be just the case that the court may have to look again at re-imprisonment of a measure of making him uh, stay away from the school and as a sort of, I suppose, punishment for the fine before this whole trial of the action is heard. And of course, then the, the outcome of that may be very different. We'll just have to wait and see what the outcome of that is. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, for, you'll have to have you in the studio the next time. But uh, thank you so much for Thanks, joining Nicole. the group chat this week. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us. Lovely to have Nicole on the podcast this week. Um, some of the issues raised by the Enoch Burke case um, have been discussed in recent months and we wanted to flesh that conversation out a bit more here on the group chat. And we are joined in studio now for that uh, by Matt Kennedy, who is Research and Policy Officer with Belong To. Matt, we want to talk a little bit about the lived experiences of uh, trans young people, trans people in school at a school level. I know you had conducted some research in the last couple of months, which found that 76% say they feel unsafe. Mm, absolutely. So that was a piece of research that we conducted with uh, Columbia University and it was a repeat of initial piece of research that we did in, in 2019 um, that was looking at LGBT students' experiences of school with a specific focus around their well-being, their mental health and how it relates to experiences of bullying and inclusion in schools. Um, so naturally, unfortunately, it was a very stark picture for the vast majority of the um, LGBT students. Um, but we have additional research that shows that trans students are additionally more vulnerable uh, within the context of their their lived experiences. Um, so some of the findings that emerged around that specific kind of transphobic language that were being used in schools um, with students were like 53% of them were hearing transphobic language from their peers. Uh, 36% were hearing that from stu- uh, school staff members as well. Um, so they're really that can really impact a student's sense of their belonging in a school environment if they're listening to transphobic language um, and they're not seeing themselves reflected potentially in school curricula, in policies um, or in procedures as well. So it can be quite challenging for a young person to feel as though they can come out if the school environment is in cognizant of their needs um, or is potentially hostile to them. You mentioned that there had been another study that that was a repeat of. Mm. Did the picture get any better or worse or was it about the same in the previous one? No, it was, it was very consistent in terms of the findings. There was some uh, improvements in, in different areas. Um, the main kind of improvement for us that we think is, is very significant is that 99% of LGBT young people could identify one supportive staff member and over half could identify 10 or more um, staff members that they felt were um, inclusive or or kind of were fostering a sense of belonging among them. Uh, and we know from that research that if a student can identify at least one supportive staff member, they're more likely to be able to come to them, to be able to come out, um, to be able to speak about their potential needs. Um, And that begins the conversation around fostering an environment where they feel as though they belong, they're accepted um, and actually is more beneficial to their academic aspirations um, and they're less likely actually to miss school um, as a result of that. As a result of that. Mm. Now, you came out in the last five or six years, is that right? Tell us a bit about your yeah, own experience. Yeah, so I came, I came out when I was 19. Um, and so I have a, a different experience to a lot of the, the trans young people who are in school at the moment. Um, because I suppose I went to school in a, a you know a, an all girls Catholic school in in West Cork, whereas you can imagine there was a lot of gendered elements around that experience, um, which was particularly challenge, challenging for me at the time, um, mostly because I didn't have a language to describe what it meant to be trans that could kind of account for my sense of my gender. Um, so what's a really significant part of our work and belong to um, is to move to ensuring that you know LGBT 
identities and experience broadly, but with a specific focus on, on trans identities and experiences are included in the curriculum. They are part of the fabric of the educational environment for young people. So they see themselves reflected. They have access to a language to be able to communicate who they are. Like for me, if I think about being back, um, you know, because I would have had an awareness of that discomfort from very, very young, like about as young as eight. Um, and then if I think about if I was in secondary school and someone had just introduced what it meant to have a different gender expression and identity, then I I, I feel like I would have saved myself an awful lot of time <laughs> in so, terms so of... You'd have been ahead of the process. Yeah. If there was somebody in your life, basically, who was able to sort of give you the vocabulary that you needed to express what you were going through, you might have been more likely to say it out loud a lot earlier. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and not even so much even just the vocabulary, but someone to kind of affirm that being trans is not only, you know, a reasonable thing to be in society, but actually something that is is valued and, and is accepted um, and is meaningful in, in the diversity of Irish society um, I think definitely in my experience growing up that was absent from my lived experience and it's really meaningful for me to work with and to support trans young people who they have people particularly educators in their life who who value the diversity that their gender identity brings to to a school environment and you mentioned that you were eight when you kind of first realized that maybe you know there was something different and mm. I suppose when you talk about being in a girls school that must have been kind of distressing probably on some on some levels because you probably felt like I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time or something. You know, even as you mentioned there, I, I went to a Catholic girls school. Mm. I know, you know, there are, I mean, a lot of people listening have, there's a lot of things that are very specifically female in, in mm. that environment that must have felt really at odds with who you are on the inside, you know? Yeah, certainly. And I mean, there are definitely synchronicities between my experience now, even though it's a couple of years on with trans young people who are experiencing that right now. Mm. I'm thinking really along the lines of kind of things like uniforms, yeah. bathroom facilities, the ways in which sports are thought about, um, even the way the curriculum is kind of thought about as well in, in terms of we tend to gender subjects maybe inadvertently as well. So a large part of our work is to encourage schools to to not kind of think about things in that way and that all students, irrespective of their gender identities, should be respected in the context of their needs, whether that's you know, the uniform that they're going to feel more comfortable in. And that's not to say that the uniform gets thrown out entirely, but just if a student is going to make, feel more comfortable in a skirt or in a pants, they should feel empowered to ask for that and they should be supported when they do. Uh, I went to an old boys uh, Catholic boarding school. Oh, well, okay. so I, I can't <laughs> imagine that what that would have been like mm. uh, for anyone who might have been in my year any other mm. year who was having some gender uh, dysphoria. Is there any um, estimate or is there any way to even estimate how many people out of the let's even take secondary school, for example, there must be about 400,000 odd students in second level in Ireland. Any way to estimate how many of them may be going through that kind of process? Yeah, so it is difficult to have an estimate around numbers of the population that are LGBT. You can kind of, I suppose from some research, say that potentially it's one in 10 people. Um, but again, there's issues around reporting because of you know potential stigma and discrimination. People aren't maybe going to freely offer that information always. Um, but we always would go to, you know, when talking to educators, when, when talking to the, the public as well to make them aware, there's more than likely at least one mm. LGBT student in, in a classroom. Okay. Um, yeah. When we were chatting on the phone yesterday, um, you and I were saying, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, sometimes when we see um, trans people depicted in media or depicted in like movies or, or TV shows that often it's kind of their struggle and their challenges are documented, but often we don't get to see the positive aspects mm. of life for them. And, you know, you talked yesterday about um, being accepted and affirmed and living a very happy and fulfilled life. You know, mm. that is something that we don't often hear about in terms of the trans experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of that is kind of paired alongside. It is quite challenging to be a trans person. You do often experience, you know, additional discrimination in a wide variety of contexts, not just education 
educational as we're talking about. But also, you know, being trans is one of the greatest joys of my life. It's it's a, a you know the the project of ensuring equality, rights and justice for trans people is something that I've dedicated my life to and I would imagine I will continue to for the rest of my life. And I'm really lucky that I continue to meet people in different fields who also in some way are part of that part of that project. Um, and, and I'm endlessly grateful that part of my work means I get to meet, meet young people who have an infinitely better experience than I've had and that that will continue for generations. So I'm I, I, I do think that it's really important to highlight that, you know, being trans is also something that's really joyful yeah, and really transformative. Uh, just going back to the, the school uh, aspect and the survey findings that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, one thing that I kind of jolted when I heard you say it was that people had heard or an X percentage had heard uh, transphobic language from a teacher. Mm. I suppose it's, it's one thing for people of younger generations maybe to sort of think that this is something they're not familiar with. It's not in their lives and they use othering language. But to hear it from adults in positions of responsibility. That kind of strikes me as, as very unusual. It makes me wonder how you go about creating a more inclusive environment among the staff. Yeah, and I mean, uh, that in the grand scheme of things, a lot of that work is kind of to, oh, sorry, excuse me, <laughs> to, um, I suppose, foster a, a greater sense of education around what potentially transphobic language looks like. Um, because sometimes transphobic language might actually materialise in terms of like heavily gendered, blatant language as well that is particularly unsettling for potentially a trans person in school. So it is kind of an educational piece around the entire student body, um, you know, peers and staff and educators alike to say that, you know, language has a really meaningful impact on how we understand ourselves. And if there's language that is positioning, you know, your sense of yourself and your identity in a really disparaging light, um, it's going to kind of erode your, your sense of self, your mental health and your well-being. Did you find, um, you know, when we talked about the coming out, because even it was interesting when we talked about it yesterday, because I think even in the five years or six years since you've come out, things have gotten a little bit easier. Mm. We are seeing things improving all the time, aren't we? But is there still kind of a lack of information, do you think, for maybe, as you say, like people's parents or older generations or even people our own age? You know, I mean, we're, you know, everyone is open to learning, but is the information there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there has definitely been a move in the past couple of years to ensure that there is a greater um, level of awareness and education around trans people's experiences and specifically kind of coming from trans people ourselves that we have a role in what that education looks like. Um, and I think specifically for educators like Belong To has an e-learn that is free that's available to all um uh, teachers uh, and and staff members engaged in in post primary education. Uh, we also have a stand up awareness week, with this, which is our um, anti homophobic, biphobic, and, and transphobic bullying week. All of that has kind of educational elements embedded within it, um, and we have a, you know a really excellent education and training team that acts as that hub of support for teachers, they can kind of pick up the phone or send an email and come to us. And we can also do that kind of case by case support as that's coming up in a school environment. Do you have much engagement with young people who are finding it difficult not alone to be trans in their school, but who may be beginning to question their own gender identity and are finding that their home or that their their parents or their guardians, their home life may not be the most supportive or understanding environment for that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, trans young people are more likely to experience social rejection and that would include their families. Um, and part of, I suppose, our role is 
to work with, you know, parents and guardians when a young person is coming out in as much as we provide support for the young person. We are always a resource for parents or guardians. Um, even I know in the context of my own experience that I would have had a very challenging coming out experience with my family initially. Um, and now a number of years on, I can see that they were really operating from a place of fear, similar to what we had spoken about. They're really worried about what my life would look like. Um, you know, would I be safe? Would I be healthy? Would I have friends? Would I be able to get a job? All of these rational concerns, given the way that trans people have been um, depicted across society. Um, so I think it's really important that there is that support for parents and guardians as well, um, in as much as that's kind of paired alongside support for the young person. Mm. It's, mm. Which is worth stressing as well, because I know, and, and I don't mean to to uh, demean or sort of belittle the experience, but I know that there are so many parents who may when a child comes to them and says, listen, I'm having questions about my gender identity, they might be inclined to write it off as something of a phase or that they think that it's something that, you know, the kid is going through, they're, they're confused or they're just trying to find their place in the world and it's something that they'll grow out of and therefore they kind of dismiss the child bringing it to them and don't really engage with it at any more meaningful level. Mm, yeah, and that's certainly part of it, I think. But some of the work that we do around that would be to say that, you know, we do afford like cisgender, non-trans and heterosexual young people the kind of self-knowledge around their genders and their sexualities. We we understand that they know that for themselves. Um, our kind of role as, uh, I suppose, providing a support and a service for those young people and their families is to say that provide them with the same sort of self-knowledge and, and agency that you'd give to other young people and respect them in their capacity to know. Like at eight years old, I you know, fully turned around to my mom and was like, I'm a boy. You know, and, you know, uh, I go to 20 odd years later, I, I am in fact a man that I had somewhere. Maybe I didn't have the language to articulate all of the nuance around that, but I was fairly certain in that awareness and I for me I think where some of that gets buried for people is that initial potentially bad reaction and some of that might be a dismissal so it's really to encourage people to if they have concerns to lean into them um, to address them um, but certainly bring it to us as a service provider um, don't necessarily have them out with, with your young person. Well I was going to say that so there could be some parents listening to the podcast today who mm. might have had that conversation with their child you know mm. their age old who might have said to them look mum or dad you know I feel I feel like I'm in the wrong body. Like, or maybe they don't have the language for that, mm. but they feel like, why would I wear a dress today when I feel like I'm a mm. boy? You know, so what would you say to those parents? Is there any tangible kind of advice not to maybe, as Gav said there, maybe not to dismiss that as just a phase, but to actually maybe have an open conversation and let yeah. them maybe, you know, role play or live out that sort of experience perhaps. Mm. Yeah, and I can absolutely heed, you know, with the experience of this year's on of, of what it must have been like for my parents kind of taking in that information for the first time. Um, my advice really would be irrespective of whether you feel totally able to support or this feels, you know, very... Um, unnerving for you um, to just kind of assure the young person like that you're there for them, that you love them, you support them and you want to be there with them for whatever this journey is, however it unfolds. Um, and if you need additional support to come to organisations like Belong To, because we are there both for the young person in your life, but also for you um, as the adult who, you know, deeply cares and, and supports them. I really have had the benefit of that in my work to see that every single adult, you know, that gets in contact with us is, is working from a place of good faith um, and, and from a place of love and, and, and of care. Uh, we changed the law in Ireland eight years ago to allow self-identification as the basis to have a, a new gender recognised in law. And we've seen the debates happening across the water now where Scotland have tried to follow suit and Westminster's getting in the way and saying no. And it's it starts to politicise the very existence of young trans people. How does it feel watching that debate happen on the other side of the sea, knowing that 
Ireland's taken that step and the world hasn't fallen in, that society is still functioning and seeing there being so much fear and panic in some quarters about the same experience on the other side of the sea. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's something that as, you know, a, a trans person living in Ireland, I have an awful lot of pride around our gender recognition legislation, um, considering that we operate on a principle of best practice globally in that we utilise self-determination. We move to, in a legislative capacity, believe trans people when we say that this is my this is my gender um, and I deserve to be recognised as that in a, in a legal capacity. Um, because really it is very challenging to move through the world with the wrong identification. It's, it's unbelievably challenging. Like I had to negotiate what it meant to go to higher level education, get my transcripts, try and get funding for my PhD. There was lots of challenges that emerged from not having that. And then when I was able to, and the process was very straightforward. And like you said, the world didn't fall apart. I was able to be, you know, legally recognised in the context of my gender and was able to kind of progress, um, you know, really in a moment of affirmation for, for who I am uh, as a trans person and as a man. Um, so I think that Ireland should hang on to that sense of pride. Uh, we should use the the existing framework we have and that it functions really well. It benefits the trans community very well. And we haven't had issues emerge from the way that that legislative process works. Uh, and so we should really be seen as, you know, at the forefront of what it means to appropriately provide for trans people in, in that legislative context. I think kind of to summarise what you're saying or what we're taking away from it is that, you know, what you're saying is if someone tells you who they are, believe them and respect that. Yeah, absolutely. And we have that functioning in, in law and it functions really, really well. Yeah, and it really benefits trans people's lives. Matt Kennedy, thank you so much for coming. I really thank enjoyed you. that conversation. Thanks, yeah. no, thank thank you, you so much. That. Thanks. Cheers. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and some tools that some viewers or listeners might have used in the last couple of weeks called ChatGPT. Uh, Zara is one of those people who has not used No, ChatGPT. I have not. Do you know anything about this? Well, we had a meeting, obviously, before the yes, podcast. But, but, are, <laughs> so but are, are you at all familiar with the no, technology so you, or what it does? I've never used it. I'm not familiar with it. You said you were going to show me. Yeah, I'm so ready to be impressed. I appreciate that for people who aren't watching on television, even those who are, this will not make for uh, very stimulating watching for just a second. But ChatGPT, basically, once you've signed up to it, it's a website. It's got a little text box and you can type in any message that you like and ask it to respond for you. So I'm going to type in, what are some good ideas for a current affairs podcast? Question mark. Let's see what it says to me. Here are some ideas for a current affairs podcast. One, political analysis. Discuss the latest political developments, elections and policies. Two, international relations. Three, environmental issues. Four, economic trends. Analyse the latest news and the trends, the impact they have on business. Social justice. It could go on. Like, it, it's a very sophisticated answer <laughs> for something that we've just asked it to do. Do, uh, do another one. Do, do the one you're talking do about another on the one. meeting. Do um, another one. Yeah. 
going to write now this is going to really go blow people's minds this if you haven't seen very it before niche now. write very a letter niche. to Santa in the style of Michael <laughs> D. Higgins enter and it only takes a couple of seconds before the answers come up and it like the, the how sophisticated this is is going to blow your mind put it in press enter for a couple of seconds and here comes letter dear Santa greetings of peace and joy from the Republic of Ireland but bear in mind, I did not say Michael D. Higgins was the president of Ireland. It's picked that up. I hope this letter finds you in good spirits and health, surrounded by the love and laughter of your elves. Uh, as we approach, this is a little story than it almost usually is. As we approach the festive season, I cannot help but reflect upon the year that has passed and the challenges we have all faced I'm fighting so this hard. This is unbelievable. It, like, I cannot. Like, this is unbelievable. That this is something like... Uh, this you is almost, generating. You can almost hear it being said in his voice. You turn your screen right. It, it, is, it is important that we come together to support one another stuff? to oh, show you, you kindness and compassion. It, never mind. You can't see it, but you can just see the text just appearing typing spontaneously the... on the screen, just as I've done that. So this is a tool called ChatGPT. It is the latest in the very public-facing uh, uh, system of um, artificial intelligence tools. We're joined by Dr. Robert Ross from the Technological University of Dublin, who is a researcher into all this area. Uh, Robert, thank you for joining us this week on the group chat. Um, without asking too simple a question, how does this work? Ah, should keep the question simple. Eh? It's <laughs> chat GPT is a chatbot, a conversational bot. And, you know, we've had them since the 1960s. But this one is particularly interesting because it's good and it's good in many different ways. Uh, and I think the, the core technology in itself isn't a breakthrough, but it, it is this idea of something called a large language model. And what that is, is a big scraping of huge amounts of information from the internet and encapsulating this in, you know, something that's called a neural network, a particular type of AI that we use commonly in different applications. And it's set up in such a way that if you give it a prompt, like a question or give it some instruction, it's really, really good at synthesizing unique answers to those questions or prompts that you can just come up with. And because it's got such a huge amount of data that it's been trained on, and it's so big in terms of all its parameters, everything that it considers when it makes its answer, it, it really does come up with some genuinely interesting, creative answers to questions. And like I, I've seen cases of people asking for not just suggestions on topics, but, you know, write me a screenplay, write write elements of a screenplay or a script or a presentation or, or a podcast that would meet some particular uh, goals. So like the types of uses of this are huge. Um, an awful lot can be very good. So for example, as an educator, as well as a researcher, I find the idea of students, be them kids in school, all the way through to PhD students, just you know, normal undergrads, having extra tutors, like this sort of virtual tutor that they can go and ask questions of. And, and when they get back the answer, being able to probe in a little bit deeper, I find that really exciting. I think that's a great thing. We've been trying to do that for years, and this has really opened the door there. Um, and then in terms of other creative industries, your own in journalism. I've heard people mention the idea that it can be great to get an initial bit of text together that they can then start building upon. Mm -hmm. So in terms of positive uses, I think they're huge, absolutely huge. But with any new technology like this one, that's particularly what we might call a disruptive technology in the sense that we don't totally know what direction it's going to go in. We don't totally know where it's going to go and how it's going to be used. There's always some danger 
in terms of the way it might be used. Either the simple case that everyone's been asking me and others about, of course, are issues like plagiarism and students. But I think, you know, particularly for a political uh, venue, we also need to consider the idea of, you know, um, who are the custodians of this sort of information? And while the open AI chat GPT is great, imagine a future where systems like this are controlled by organizations who mightn't always have good intentions at heart. Mm, and Gavin's going to bring us the rest of that letter before the end of this segment. <laughs> but um, it, just in terms of the accuracy and the information, I mean, you know, people perhaps, as you say, using it maybe to do college assignments or, or whatever, that I mean, how accurate is the information in terms of fact checking what, what it throws up? Broadly, in the broad sense, it's accurate in that it's sort of like being scraped from an awful lot of information, but it is definitely not foolproof and it makes mistakes. Uh, there's a very well-regarded American researcher, Andrew Ng, and, and I think his initial tweet reaction captures a lot of our, our views, which is that it can be great, but hilariously wrong at times. And you can by no means be sure it's got its facts straight. So whenever answers are produced by it, really you should be checking to make sure that those answers are correct. One of um, the colleagues I work with in the ADAPT Centre, he has a, a great example he showed me of how he was asking about a, a local fishing organisation when it was built and ChatGPT gave him a lovely summary about the fishing organisation that he was using in a letter. But it had the year of creation of the fishing club just totally wrong. And we still can't figure out where it even got that wrong date from. Now, if you talk back to it, and that's one of the nice things about ChatGPT, you can sort of like correct it in a conversational way. And you say, actually, you know, the date was this. It will turn around and say, oh, right. OK, sorry. I, I now understand the date was whatever the corrected date was. But that still doesn't explain why it got the date wrong in the first place. So you have to be careful. Well, that, I think that's a key issue people need to keep in mind about these technologies. Well, that idea that it can learn from its mistakes is one of the things which is in a way so exciting, but also maybe so daunting about it. Because if it's possible for this yeah. uh, system to train itself to when it's when it's learned things uh, and when it finds out that it's got something wrong, it also then begs the question is to can it learn to improve itself? And then does that mean we could be looking at a system where you have very elaborate systems of artificial intelligence that are capable of self-improvement? Uh, and that kind of opens a Pandora's box then for what the technology can actually achieve. It does. And, and only recently, actually yesterday, I came across a couple of reports where people were mentioning that they had got ChatGPT to write the code for another chatbot, for another conversational AI. And that starts to raise those questions that you're mentioning about, can this thing start to improve it? in a very explicit way. I, um, for the moment, I would still say, well, no, it can't, because still there was some human sitting down and giving the controls and parameterizing what needed to be done for this better system. So like there is still a human in control. ChatGPT is just making it a little easier to perform the task. But you're dead right. I mean, in in the long-term view, people have this great fear about AIs improving on their own intelligences. And it's not an area I pay a lot of attention to. It's more of a science fiction area in a way, but that whole question of the singularity is ultimately that goal when you've got an AI that can just improve on it so much, it no longer needs us. Um, but again, that's sort of going into the realm of AI. When you talk about it being modified, 
I think some of the, the more pressing short-term concerns are, are things I would have an issue with, such as misinformation. Um, we know in system, in Wikipedia, for example, a lot of effort had to go into moderation eventually in terms of making sure that the information being entered into it was valid and valuable information and without bias. So a big challenge, not immediately with ChatGPT, but with systems like it, is making sure that when corrections, when extra information are being added into customized systems, that they are high quality extra pieces of information and people with more nefarious interests aren't adding in information to achieve something that's more negative, particularly with respect to society. So that's a big area that we would find interesting in terms of how these systems are used, not just by the individual, but by politicians, society in general. Yeah, I suppose the, the big concern really is that it's only as good as the information that's fed into it. And if there's a lot of wrongful information online, then they can it can reach the wrong conclusion out of that. And I think one of the reasons why people find this to be so exciting or so fascinating is because it, almost to a to degree, there is that science fiction aspect where if you can train this thing to start talking like a human, you can train it to start writing speeches like Michael D. Higgins, for example, then it, it sort of begs the question, then could you end up feeding it enough examples of literature or speech from a particular person, whether it's a politician or even just a loved one? If you had enough for recordings of a loved one, could you ultimately then uh, feed those into an AI system and then have this virtual replica of a real life person? Yes, in terms of style, that that is a big challenge, a big question. Um, And I know that I've read different discussions on this, some people pointing out that, you know, a derived work is ultimately, you know, a derived work. It's not the original work, therefore you can derive and you don't need to worry about the the originator of the content. But on the other hand, people are pointing to the idea of, you know, people own their own visual identity. And and I remember first it was like this video of... um, uh, somebody had synthesized an actor long after they died and, and it had raised a lot of questions about who owns that identity. And I think this is going to raise some new questions again about the ownership of particular styles because there's one thing for a parody to be constructed. And of course, a parody is is free of those concerns. But when somebody is genuinely taking some other author's style, say J.K. Rowling's based on her Harry Potter books, etc., and her other writings, and suddenly coming up with a book that's in the style of J.K. Rowling, it does open up all of those questions about whether that's fair, whether that's overreach from the technology company's perspective. And um, I certainly know, or I, I believe that OpenAI and companies like them are being careful about this and trying to make sure they don't step on too many toes just yet to make sure they don't end up with a whole heap of legislative controls sitting on top of them. And likewise, would you have concerns about things like deep fakes? I mean, we're not totally, uh, you know, familiar with deep fakes. You might just go into a bit of detail. But what, first of all, what a deep fake is and the role that this could play in that. Wait, wait, a deep fake is, in from an image perspective, it's quite similar. It's a type of what we call a generative AI application where you can take lots of training data of somebody, be it Barack Obama is one of the famous examples, and generate a new unique video that you set the the text for, you say what he's going to say, and a video was produced that looks and sounds just like that individual. That's what a deep fake is. And they've been knocking around and improving in quality greatly over the last couple of years. And again, it introduces the challenge with many of these generative techniques that people can't tell the difference between what was original work and what was ultimately some sort of derived work. Maybe that derived work is there for good, 
which is great, but maybe it's there for other more dangerous reasons. And I think that's why we need people to be aware and always question, you know, what is the legitimacy of whatever content it is that they're looking at? And that could be music, movies, images, etc. But you can imagine how something like deep fakes could be used or, or are already used to pretend that politicians said something. And then ultimately, if you're seeing a, a a document, a letter or something that really sounds like it's in the style of somebody, um, it would be pretty easy to hoodwink people into thinking, yeah, uh, that was actually written by that person. And they really did say that when obviously they didn't. Speaking of that. Well, sp- speaking of that, I want to read people the rest of Michael D's letter to Santi. Uh, As we reflect on the year that has passed, I'm reminded of the resilience and determination of our communities in the face of adversity. In these challenging times, it is more important than ever to cherish the simple moments of happiness and to bring light into the lives of those around us. I'd like to take this opportunity to extend my warmest wishes to you and your team of elves as you embark on your journey to deliver gifts and joy to children everywhere. What does he ask Santa for, Gav? Uh, I should ask actually what Michael D Higgins would ask Santa for. <laughs> That's a question for another time. Uh, Robert Ross from the ADAPT Centre and the School of Computer Science and Technology University of Dublin. Thank you so much for joining Fascinating us. Fascinating This stuff. week on the group chat. Thanks Thank for joining for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Robert Ross. Um, I'm going to be honest, right? I do find it a little bit terrifying. I, well, I understand why you I would. do a little bit now. I, do, I think it's I know, amazing. I know that, that Robert described it as being the work of science fiction and that yeah. it's good not to sort of think too much about it. But if you are getting into a world where these systems are capable of self-improvement, yeah. like it's not unthinkable that you only need one system to go rogue and decide, well, I'm not going to, it's in my interest as a system to not yeah. follow whatever prompts the human has given it to work out whatever I want to do. We had a question from our director, Dan, in the gallery who wants to know, what would Michael yes, D actually because ask Michael D wrote a letter to Santa but didn't actually include a request for any <laughs> gifts. So I yeah. asked uh, ChatGPT, what would Michael D Higgins ask Santa for? Uh, and the answer, long-winded as ChatGPT tends to be, as President of Ireland, Michael D Higgins is known for his commitment to social justice, equality and the promotion of human rights. He may have had a number of requests for Santa Claus that reflect these values, including one, a world in which everyone has access to basic needs like food, shelter and medical care. Two, a greater understanding and acceptance of different cultures and perspectives. Three, an end to conflict and violence. Four, increased efforts to protect the environment and preserve our planet for future generations. It is important to note, ChatGPT adds, that these are just some examples of what President Higgins might request. They are not based on any specific statements made by him. Ultimately, the requests including uh, of any individual, including the President of Ireland, are a matter of personal preference and belief. So he might have asked for a train set. Yeah, I was a bit, <laughs> Director Dan wants to know why there's no train set as a <laughs> yeah. prize on that list. I mean, it's, it, it's fascinating. It is it? Yeah. so fascinating. And I, I, I find it very funny that you were you nearly went into your Michael D voice it's when you so were reading difficult. the letter. When, when it was loading so slowly. I, I, I don't think the world's ready to hear your Michael D voice no. yet. Do you want to so, do so, it? Or no, do you wanna... some, some Christmas episode, maybe not okay, today. Well, We'll keep it. We'll keep it. Um, did you forget that we had a bank holiday? If anyone's listening, surprise, if you didn't remember, there's a bank holiday this weekend. And the joy of realising that one forgot the new bank holiday. It's a, it's a really good month of the year to have an extra bank oh, holiday. Oh, it's unbelievable. It? Absolutely glorious. Uh, because like the, that post-Christmas time where like in January and it's all miserable and everyone still feels a little bit out of sorts or yeah. out of shape after Christmas. And then suddenly you, you've made it through January and you're like, wham, bam, another new... a, a Monday off. It's uh, great. Remind us, Gav, of how this bank holiday came about. Uh, this was originally conceived of. Do you remember the day you reported this? Do you remember the commotion around that new bank holiday? Oh my god, tell that story. Have you time to oh, tell no, that story? I, I better do now because yeah. I'd actually I'd, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that I was the first person to report this. Yeah. Um, so this was floated as something uh, during the one of the phases of COVID where things. Did you ended up reporting it way before then. It actually got confirmed a few weeks. Yeah, it was one of those things where a stopped <laughs> clock is right twice a day because I reported and then eventually it became it true anyway. True, yeah. So it was being discussed uh, after in one of the COVID lulls. 
Wales where the restrictions were not quite as yes. severe. It was discussed as something that we should do to commemorate those who died from COVID, but also to acknowledge the work of frontliners and the like, should there be um, either a one-off or a persistent recurring bank holiday. Yeah. And last year we had one, St. Patrick's Day last year fell on the Thursday. The Friday was also granted as an additional day off. So it was something of a day of remembrance uh, for those who died during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also just a recognition of some of the work that many people had mm. done throughout all of that. But from this year on, it's going to be on the first Monday of February, unless the first of February, St. Bridget's Day, which is the day today that we're recording this, unless that's a Friday, mm -hmm. in which case it will actually fall on the Friday itself. Now, for what it's worth, I think Bank Holiday Fridays are a far better idea than Bank Holiday Mondays. Oh, I think they God, always that's feel controversial like, now. Is it though? I, I, I feel like I people... Decide, I need people, to decide what I prefer Friday or Monday. If, if I think if a bank, a bank holiday always, to me, feels spiritually like a Saturday. So I think it makes more sense to have the two Saturdays in, in spirit running together. Because like, isn't the beauty of bank holiday Monday that you don't get the Glen Rose on a Sunday? You get them on the Monday, but Sinead agrees on the floor. Yeah, Sinead agrees on the floor. A, that's big, our, a big home on that, the... Yeah. That's our test case. Um, so I that's what it is. that's but the point of the bank holidays. You don't get the Glen Rose on the Sunday. I'd completely forgotten that I was the first person to report that. So no, I, I, I got, remember that. I got wind of it I remember reported, when it happened and you were like... Uh, and I reported it and I went to the news at eight. And then I remember... <laughs> I remember uh, literally turning my phone off airplane mode after the news at eight, as it then was, yeah. and getting a text from a minister who was at cabinet, which was still ongoing <laughs> at that time, being like... I don't know where you got that from. And I went, oh, oh no. I do oh, remember oh, the mild no. panic when that did. Uh, and the mild panic. And then everyone being like, hey, when's this new bank holiday coming? And because it took so long for the government to eventually decide Sign that we should on. have one, it sort of felt like I was given a really, really bad steer by someone who was usually in the know on these things. Lo and behold, but it did it happen right in the end. end. It did happen, and it's in the next end. Monday. And enjoy it, everyone. It's and just remember Bridget's the first person holiday. who told you about it. It was Gavin Riley. It's the St. Bridges Bank Holiday. It is, uh, which means that all four of the Celtic festivals are now bank holidays. So this is either St. Bridges Day or Imbolg, which was the old Celtic festival yeah. to, to mark spring. So Imbolg, uh, Bealtaine, Lunasa, and Samhain are the bank holidays now at the start of February, May, August and the Halloween start of November bank holiday, uh, which is a really nice kind of touch that like all four of the old Celtic festivals that the calendar used to be completely built around are now still holidays in the, modern, yeah. in the modern day. I do love the kind of, I have to say, I do love seeing people sharing like the St. Bridget's Day celebrations online and, you know, even people who you wouldn't maybe necessarily describe themselves as being religious or anything, that they're sort of celebrating women and it's a real, you know, celebration mm. of femaleness. Yeah, and, and it, even in fact today, the day that we're recording this on Wednesday, Leo Varadkar had a little moment in the door where he made a little speech to say, well, today is St. Bridget's Day and it's a holiday and it's a day in which we now celebrate the role of women yeah. in Irish society and the achievements that they've had, mm -hmm. which if that does become what this bank holiday is, it just it. becomes an annual celebration, like a formalised nulling them on, but like on an official everyone gets yeah. a day off sense. I kind of love that. that. My late grandmother always loved Bridget and always celebrates St. Bridget's Day. Actually, I remember when we were growing up like Bridget and she'd always have a Bridget's cross. Like she was really into Bridget and really into that sort of female empowerment aspect of it. Key question. Key Go question. On. A lot of people online sort of campaigning to have Bridget be bigger than St. Patrick. There's a bit of competition between the two days. <laughs> what do you think? It's kind of nice to have a national holiday that isn't one that we have to share with the rest of the world. Isn't it? Like if yeah, St. Bridget fair. is one of our patrons yeah. of same standing to Patrick, it'd be kind of nice to have just a, you know, one for like house private, just before we have to celebrate the whole world, <laughs> just kind of enjoy ourselves. What, the, my my favourite thing about St. Bridget is that she's the patron saint of brewers. Oh, it's not brewing. over. Yeah, yeah, one of uh, St. Bridget's apparent miracles that garnered her her sainthood was that she used to convert her used bath water into beer for her guests at her monastery in Kildare. So she's seen as the patron saint of brewers. And it also means that anyone who is doing dry January can finish dry January on the patron saint of brewing. And that, which I think is a really nice listeners, note. is what we call Gav doing Gav things. <laughs>
Oh dear, we, we better finish. We better finish. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening this week. Um, before we let you go, just a reminder maybe to leave a little little Yeah, rap, leave, little leave a, a rating or a subscribe or a thumbs up or whatever it is on whatever yeah. platform it is. Leave a little rating. It's really good to help us. Uh, and if you write a little business. review, we might read out some of the nice reviews next week. Only the nice ones. I love how I'm committing to doing this so I'll forget to do it. No, I won't forget it. We are going to, we'll read them out. That's yes. what, we're going to read them out next week. Uh, we will be back next week. Richard will still be on his holidays. So we'll get some new, interesting, exciting people. If you have any suggestions of people you'd like to see joining the group chat, you can contact us across all our social media platforms. Indeed. But for now, we bid you good night, good afternoon and good morning whenever you're listening. Goodbye. Bye. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made byheart a better formula for formula learn more at byheart.com